can't believe that I fucking told you about that. I'm so annoyed now. <laughs> User error 69. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And there's nothing funny about this episode title. Um, do keep your hashtag ask error questions coming in on Twitter or in Telegram, or you can email us error.show slash contact. We always like to uh, get your questions that can be about anything that don't have to be Linuxy. It can be about tech or life, the universe and everything, anything you like. But let's start today with distro user numbers. We did touch on distro watch uh, quite a few episodes ago, actually, um, and how that is not a reliable metric of user numbers. But I wanted to ask you guys, as people who work for and on distros, it's not public information, and it's also very hard to, to get in the first place. Dan, you don't really count user numbers, do you? Kind of. We try to kind of estimate them, but it's very difficult because we don't have any kind of telemetry at all. So we we can't really get an accurate picture of active daily users. The best we can do is kind of look at download trends, and that's downloads of the operating system itself, but also downloads of packages, um, which... I'm sure Alan can tell you a whole lot more about, but um, the big problem with it is that depending on how frequently you release updates and how infrequently users press the update button, it doesn't really give you a super accurate picture of how many people are actually logging into a computer. It just kind of gives you like a really rough round number of like how many people are kind of running their updates maybe. It's also tricky because some people just don't want to be counted. And part of the reason they use Linux is they don't like the idea of the man spying on them and the man knowing anything about them. Even if all they know is that an installation on the planet somewhere exists, some people have a philosophical objection to that and don't like the idea that they're being, in inverted commas, tracked. Um, so it's for Linux, it's always been one of those things that it's very difficult to either count because of technical difficulties because someone could download an ISO and install it on 10 machines or they could download an ISO and never install it on anything. So it's hard to tell how a download maps to a number of installs. And then those 10 installs that one person may have done, those might have been the same VM 10 times, or it could be 10 different physical machines that are all sat behind the same IP address, or it could be 10 different machines on different locations. And all of these variables make it really hard to tell how many people, like human meat bags or devices, like physical computing devices, are actually installed. And that that's part of the problem is people don't want it, and or some people don't want it, and it's hard to do. I think probably maybe even more important than asking like, how do distros try to count the number of users is like, why do distros try to count the number of users? Like besides just for pure vanity, like why is it good for us to know? Right. Well, the official reason is so that you can kind of concentrate your efforts where they're needed, right? So if it turns out that you've got a billion people in India downloading your distro, but then hardly anyone in English-speaking countries, then obviously you're going to spend a lot more time on the translations for that or whatever. But there's a certain commercial pressure as well to know the, the numbers, right? Um, I think 
I agree with you that it's useful to know how much, not just for vanity, but to be able to focus your attention. So, but that's not just from our point of view. Like you look at, uh, someone like Valve, for example, with Steam, which is a piece of software that is very commonly installed on a wide spectrum of operating systems. Um, it's not like an Ubuntu specific piece of software or a Linux Mint specific piece of software. So the, the statistics are skewed. It's very, uh, likely to be installed on lots of different distros and also non Linux as well. And so for them, knowing that a proportion of the user base is on one distro or another allows them to make decisions about how well they support that distro. So when people come and ask technical questions, how likely is this technical problem that someone has come with going to affect one other user, 10 other users, or maybe a million other users? And if they know that that distro doesn't even have 20 users, then maybe they spend less time prioritized on something that affects 20 users and more time on something that affects 20,000 or 200,000 users. And that's just practical business. Like you have a finite amount of resources, a certain amount of money to spend and a, an ever growing list of tasks and bugs and things to fix. And you want to focus your time on the things that are going to get the most benefit. Like when we approach a potential hardware partner or even a software partner, like um, Alan said with Valve, but it could be other kinds of services or software products as well. And we say to them, hey, we would really like to make sure that our users can either install and enjoy our operating system on your hardware or we'd really like it if you could offer a pre-install out of the box or hey we think your service would be really interesting to our users but it would take a little bit of engineering effort for it to work well on the operating system then they really want to know they really want to know okay if i invest time if i pay people to make sure that this thing works correctly? Am I going to get a return on that investment? And if you have a tiny number of users, the answer is no. And they need to know. They need to know that, okay, if I do this, this is how much money my business will make in return. Right. And when you look at things like, um, back in the day, the Unity game development engine, Unity Technologies, they used to have um, a brainstorm style site where people could suggest new features and then other users or potential users or potential customers could vote things up or down. And one of the things that was always really super popular on that site was please make a Linux version of Unity so that I can do my game development on Unity. And whenever that appeared on there, it would rocket up to the top. And that happens on a lot of these software sites. They... Yeah, they want to know, they want to canvas their community and say, what should we do? And part of the reason they ask is that they don't have concrete data. They don't necessarily know how many Linux users there are out there who could be a potential audience. And so they have to, yeah, they could come to us and say, how many users does Ubuntu have? And go to Manjaro and say, how many users do you have? And add all of those up and get some kind of idea. But it's way simpler to just put a voting button on a website and have people vote. But even that isn't accurate either because some people will press yes i want that thing even though they never have any intention of installing the software anyway one thing i've noticed is that no distro really wants to publish the number of daily active users and is that 
purely for commercial reasons or what? Because it seems a strange juxtaposition with the open development model and everything's done out in the open, except for, well, I mean, Ubuntu now, Canonical and Ubuntu have a fair idea of the numbers of uh, desktop users because of, um, is it called Ubuntu Report, um, that tool? Well, that's not super accurate either because that's only a report on install. Um, You could do an install, send the report, and then wipe it and put Windows on. So that even that's not super accurate either. Right, but you must have uh, you know a bunch of different metrics that you can put together and right. at least estimate to within or, an order of magnitude or whatever. But yet you will never talk about that, you guys, which I totally understand. But do you see what I mean, how it's a little bit at odds with the whole open source ethos? Right, and it is, it's also frustrating uh, for me in my job, because I often need to speak to developers and um, say, hey, could you bring your application over to Linux? And the first question they always ask us is, how many users are there? And if our answer is, oh, we don't know, then sure enough, as Daniel says, they're going to say, well, if you can't tell me what my return on investment is likely to be and how many users I'm likely to get and, you know, roughly where those people are so we can focus, like you say, on translations or the UI polish for a particular region, then why would I bother? I, I no way of knowing whether I'm going to be successful. And so, yeah, it's frustrating for me in my job that I can't point to a chart somewhere on the internet and say, look at that. Now, conversely, what also is interesting is sometimes they come to us. So sometimes a software developer will come to us and say, I've already got software available for Linux. And here is a breakdown of all the Linux distributions. And we've had software vendors show us pie charts with a breakdown of how many Linux, like the proportion of how many installs of their piece of software is on all the distros, because it's not that we are identifying which distro, but they are in that their software is sending telemetry home that reports how many installs it is. And so that helps us but that's no use for us when we come to talk to the next developer because we can't say, hey, this other guy showed us a pie chart that showed that we have like 60% of the market or something. We can't do that because that's, you know, private data that was shown to us like um, as a favor, really. Aha, but you've just revealed it. 60% of the market. <laughs> Did I? Did I really? Um, so it is difficult and it is frustrating sometimes. And also... Sometimes you are in danger revealing how small the other guys are. And that doesn't make you look good either. Like if, if we published numbers that showed how large the Ubuntu user base was and also showed you how small some of the other distros are, that might not make them feel super good about us. <laughs> so, well, which brings me to Dan. How many users <laughs> do you have? <laughs> so, this is always hard because you have to pad it with lots of like using our absolute best guess. And like Alan said, the methodology is incredibly flawed and could give back completely garbage data. Um, but you know, with with three pounds of salt, then what we've been saying recently is that 
everything that we've looked at shows that our user base is probably somewhere in like the 700,000 range at the moment. But we don't know. It could be way bigger and it could be a lot smaller. It's really hard to say this is the number when we don't have any telemetry. You can say like this is kind of where the trends point, but we can't definitively say that's the number. And is that information not somewhat private and sort of corporate secrety? I mean, obviously not. Otherwise, you wouldn't have just said it on this show. <laughs> yeah, not really. I mean, we when we're talking with people who are interested, then that's you know kind of what we'll let them know, and and that's the number that we have in um, like some we have like a pitch deck that's kind of like why should you care about elementary OS, and that's the number that we have on that, and that's totally public information. It's not something that we like walk around saying on Twitter, because like I said, it's a really hand wavy kind of eh, like, uh, I don't know, we're guessing here. So it's, it's not really useful to users. But if someone as a developer is like, well, I want to know, is it 10 or is it 100,000 or is it a million? Like, you know, which is it closer to then then that's it's useful in that way to be able to say it's more like this number than that number. But if if you're like, what number is it, then this this number is totally useless and, and doesn't really mean anything for you. Okay, hashtag ask error. Do you get annoyed by people who use last seen recently? So I'm talking about in Telegram and WhatsApp and presumably other messages as well, which shows you when the other person was last online. And you can often select this option to be vague about it and just be last seen recently, Ooh, you know, not tell them how long it's been. And I do kind of understand why people do it. And I did set it to be like that in Telegram once, but then I realized that uh, they make you then not be able to see when other people are online. And so I was like, no, fuck that. I'm too nosy. I'll let, just let people know that I never go to sleep or whatever. And it so it just really annoys me. I just want to know when the person was last around. It's just a useful thing to know. I guess I feel like, you know, texting for me isn't really a synchronous form of communication. Like, I don't really think of it as like old school, like chat, like when you dialed up and you were like, we're both on the internet at the same time and we're chatting to each other. Like, it just doesn't feel like that. It feels like any kind of messaging to now feels more like IRC where it's like, I'm going to shoot you a message and I don't even know if you're around. And whenever you get back, like you'll text me back. If it was important, I'd disrupt your life and give you a phone call. Well, without texting first, that would be a cardinal (laughs) sin. Um, this really surprises me, Joe, because you are exactly the kind of person who I would expect to hide their, uh, recency of scene because, you know, you have this air of mystery around you and you like to, uh, not reveal too much about your personal life, which is perfectly reasonable and it's okay. And I'm not knocking that in any way, but you seem to be the kind of person who would exactly turn that thing so that people can't see when you were last online. Well, yeah, like I said, I did originally do that, but then I was too annoyed by not being able to see when other people were online. <laughs> you <So>, hypocrite. <laughs> yeah, I am a complete hypocrite. But, you know, that's I think that's a good thing in Telegram, that it forces you to, you know, if you're going to do that, then everyone else gets it sort of thing. So that's pretty cool of them to do it, to force people to not do it, basically. So I, I just it just really annoys me. I don't know why. It's, we talked about, like, pet peeves and stuff like that, but this is just... 
especially when you're waiting to hear from someone and you've just got no clue like have, are they asleep are they at the gym you know have they just popped out briefly or you know when are they going to get back to me and it's a very useful bit of information to be able to deduce the likelihood of a you know reply soon right but people can misuse this um recently i was in a a group and someone said something and there's about i don't know 30 or 40 people in this group and they're all adults and someone said something and then a few minutes later or maybe half an hour later their husband said all oh, right nobody's going to say anything having looked at who had seen that message using a similar feature in that chat to be able to see who had seen something and he got really knocked because nobody responded i think the message was something like their child had been in an accident and you know wasn't going to be able to come to whatever practice um and is in hospital and is on the mend but you know you won't be seeing my child this evening and the husband got all grumpy because he'd seen that everyone had seen this message and nobody had responded and so he's kind of having a go at us because our clients narked on us and told him that we had seen that message and we have been some outrageous bastard who hadn't replied with sympathy and appropriate emojis for their son or daughter <laughs> um and and I just felt that was such an abuse of of the technology that someone could do that. I mean, obviously, it's his own social problem that he didn't realize that was an inappropriate thing to do because some people just don't look at, you know, don't don't want to context switch to personal stuff while they're at work or maybe they glanced at the phone and then think, oh, that's not important for me. It's not uh, it's not directed at me, so I'll I'll look at it later. But these kind of technologies they can be misused. I think that I just don't trust the accuracy of these things either, especially in such a multi-device world we live in now. If I have something that's just on my computer up, but I'm nowhere near my desk and it marks something as seen, like that's totally inaccurate. Or like if I'm doing something out and I move my wrist a certain way and the screen lights up on my watch, then it's going to mark that I saw that text message, even though I didn't like, I just don't trust the accuracy of it. It just seems like it's kind of not useful because it, it, it doesn't really reflect the truth anymore. So I've just turned it off on your recommendation, Joe, because... Oh, you bastard. I didn't even realize this was a thing. So... Can you whitelist me, please? That's also a thing? Yeah. I could set you as being someone who I want to be able to spy on my lo my attendance to your messages. That's what you're saying, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna go ahead and not do that, bastard. Why in 2019 do we still have a concept of status? Everybody's online always. They just might not have time for you. Yeah, I don't know. If you're on a plane and you've got no internet access, and maybe there's uh, drama brewing in your community, and uh, you can't talk about it because the people responsible for applying to that kind of drama are on an airplane, you know maybe cut people some slack when they show up as last seen recently. Maybe they're on a plane. That sounds highly specific. No, not at all. <laughs> right, home automation. And I class this as, I suppose, anything from smart light bulbs and switches and thermostats through voice assistants all the way up to, like, completely automated everything 
you know, garage doors opening and, you know, all of that stuff. Now, I do not go into this at all, but do either of you two? Well, hang on. Why do you not go into all of this? That's a good question. I think one of the main reasons is a lack of standards. And so there's not a, an easy way for it all to talk to each other. And I tend to be a kind of intrapenny, intrapound type person. So I'd probably want to go full on. And also because I just don't like the idea of an extra thing listening to me all the time, really. So that's specifically for the voice uh, control things, the proprietary voice control things you're you're objecting to there, not the ability to automate uh, your thermostat and automate your lighting. It's specifically that some, you're doing voice commands in order to control that. Yeah, that aspect of it I don't like. And having to just use more proprietary services, and I've heard so many horror stories about people whose thermostat can't be controlled because the server's down and stuff like that and then it's freezing cold or boiling hot or whatever and so i would want to avoid that and i know there are ways to do that but um I, just just those sorts of things and i'm just a bit of a luddite i think i remember seeing a video of a guy i think he was a nest employee it might have been nest might have been google um and he had of fire alarms going off throughout his house and he had a large house he had multiple fire alarms and they were all screaming constantly and he couldn't turn them off in any way and he was even like taking them off the wall and putting them in buckets and stuff but you could still hear them screaming like throughout the house and there was no way for him to turn them off so yeah i'm not a fan of technology that you know abuses the user and is not easily turn on and offable right but lights you've got a switch and even if it won't turn off, you can just go and press the switch on the wall and it will cut power to the light bulb and turn it off. It's a bit difficult, a bit more difficult if it's like hardwired, like a, a thermostatic control or you know, heating control or something like that, or your garage door won't open. <laughs> I can see that being frustrating because some robot AI is being rebooted somewhere and so you can't open the garage door. Yeah, I can see that being frustrating for sure. Karen and I both have iPhones, so we kind of went the HomeKit route. We also have uh, an Apple TV, and so that's kind of our smart device hub. And so we currently have one HomeKit-enabled light switch in the bedroom. And what it's set up to do now is so that each of us could bark into our phones, hey, Siri, turn on the bedroom light, and she'll do that. And, uh, you know, turn it off, which is nice, because, you know, when you climb into bed, you don't want to do it in the dark and bump into things, so we can just leave it on, get into bed, yell at Siri to turn off the light, and she does it. But also, uh, because we have a dog, and sometimes uh, we come back home after dark, we have an automation set up such that if uh, there are no phones in the house then the light will turn on at sunset for the dog. And that's pretty nice. Yeah, we have similar. We've got uh, lights all around the place, and we use uh, the Amazon Lady Cylinders, and they we use those to bark orders at the light bulbs. Um, and we have automation as well. So in the wintertime, when my wife is driving home from work, it can be quite dark when she comes home, and we have a light outside that, covers the driveway where she puts her car and so i've got the light switch for that is on the inside of the house um so i've got it so the light switch is always on but it's automatic and it comes on at dusk 
so when she comes home, the house is lit up. Also, the hallway where she comes in, that one lights up at the same time. So when she comes home, it's more welcoming. She's not coming home to what looks like a cold, dark house. She's coming home to somewhere where there's a couple of lights that make it easy for her to walk back from her car without slipping up and get into the house without having to fumble around to try and find her keys in the dark. So I think those are quality of life improvements. Um, we also have light bulbs in various rooms, which are automatic uh, turning off. The one in the lounge dims slowly to kind of give us a hint to go to bed. Um, but it doesn't always work because we end up just sitting there in the dark. Um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a, a shitty pub where they uh, put the lights <laughs> on really bright to kind of give you the, the hint, start flashing the lights, right, you know, last orders, get out, please. Yeah, maybe maybe we should do something more aggressive because it actually doesn't work because the lights go down really dim and then we fall asleep on the sofa. Um, but the one in the bedroom, I've got set to wake us up gently in the morning so the lights come on slowly, like not really harsh turn on they they come on from a very low um percentage and then gradually get brighter to wake us up a bit more gently um and at night time all the lights in the house go off at the same time so yeah saves a bit of power and shuts down the house yeah but all of this could be done with much simpler technology like the the lights outside um could be controlled by just a, a standard photoelectric cell type thing that just senses when it's dark and turns them on like you don't need to have some server in a data center controlling that for you sure for that use case right but what if uh we're coming home on a weekend that it's not um you know it's not quite dark yet it's just dusk or what if there's some other time that i want to have the light on and i've got no way of turning it on because it's totally controlled by this night sensor I, I like the flexibility. That's like the, the turning it on when wifey comes in from work is one use case. But the fact that it is highly configurable means it's more flexible than actually just putting a light sensor on it. Yeah. And, and like for us, the, the light switch is controlled by the Apple TV over local Wi-Fi. None of these things need to interact with the data center. And the only thing that um, would need to do that is if we wanted to issue a command to the Apple TV from the phone when we're outside of the house, then it's, you know, however that magically works. But but for the regular automation stuff, it's all controlled locally. And there are tools, if you don't want this to go off to the cloud, you can do this locally. There's USB uh, radio devices that can transmit on the right frequency to tell the lights to come on and off. And you could do all this on your own server at home or even an old laptop, you know, running Linux, install Home Assistant or something like that. And you could control all the rules in a browser from any computer you own and do all the detection of Bluetooth devices as they come near, the same way that Dan said when, you know, there's no phones nearby, then that probably means neither of you at home. So turn the lights on for the dog, that kind of thing. You could do all of that without sending data to the cloud. Maybe I need to uh, get into that then. Mm. I don't know really what it is that stopped me doing it. Um, I, I don't think it's like laziness or whatever, because I do enjoy tinkering with this sort of stuff, but I just there's just something about it that just feels a little bit futuristic in a bad way, if you know what I mean. It it, it feels like it's a little bit wall-y almost, this, this kind of stuff. Maybe, but I don't think I'm 
putting on weight because I'm not standing up to turn the lights off in the lounge. There are other reasons for that. But I don't think I get a tremendous amount of exercise flicking a switch at nighttime as opposed to just saying, Alexa, turn all the lights off. And that's nice. Being able to say, turn all the lights off and every light in the house goes out or just saying, turn the bedroom light off and my bedroom light goes out. Like being able to individually address the devices in the house by name is nice and feels like you're not talking necessarily to a robot or a an API. It feels like you're asking the gorgeous cylinder in the corner to do a thing for you and it just does it. Yeah, I think that might be part of why I don't like it because it feels like you're talking to a person when you're just fucking not, as you've just said. Mm. I think the thing that I really want to get into next is have enough devices on there to actually make use of scenes so that when we're doing something like, hey, I want to start a workout, that we can tell uh, Siri to set that scene and she knows that means, okay, turn these lights on, turn these lights off, turn the fan on, you know, turn the TV on, like, you know, because we use workout videos. But, you know, that that sort of thing, like, it would be nice to get um, to have enough devices on the network to be able to really say, you know, these are like a set of 10 things that I do every single time we work out every single day, that it would be nice to just in one command have them done. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to be able to say, uh, Alexa, Netflix and chill. And, it, you know, send a message to Domino's and order me a pizza and turn all the lights off and turn the telly on and flick it straight onto Netflix. Like, I'd, I'd love to be able to have, you know, a combined set of things that I would like it to do. And I think that's possible. It's just I don't have all the right devices and all the right transmitters, but I think we'll get there. Okay, hashtag ask error. Do you share any accounts or passwords with your partner? You know, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, that sort of thing. So, um, Dan, do you share anything or is it locked down? We do, actually. We share um, several things. And, you know, it, it's funny because some things I feel like have to be shared, right? Like the Netflix account has to be shared. And um, we have to be able to share those passwords because Netflix doesn't allow us to set up individual passwords, which is kind of crappy because I feel like Every service that has some kind of concept of like families will use this should you should be able to sign in with your own password and have two factor and all this fun stuff. But since we don't and and we do have to share accounts like that or like, um, you know, we have a target account because we want to be able to manage our shopping list and and share that or um, we use um the Apple family stuff so that we can have a family calendar and reminders and all those things on our phones. So there's some things that we have individual passwords for that we can sign into and a lot of things that we have to share but don't have individual passwords for. So um, I actually got Karen to sign up for Bitwarden. And so we have a little family um, that we set up through Bitwarden and we share passwords for our accounts there so that we can use generated secure passwords so for me, it's uh, kind of the other way around. I, 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 I do share the Netflix password for exactly the same reason, because they've all got their own devices and they need to be able to sign in and sometimes they get signed out. So they need to know the password. So everyone in the family knows that one. They've each got their own Spotify password. So Spotify do it right with a family plan. You each get your own username and password. So that's okay. And I know most of their passwords just off the top of my head because sometimes i have to debug something but none of them know any of my passwords 
I think there might be a pin number login to one of the Windows computers so that Sam can let one of his mates play games on it. But other than that, yeah, I know all theirs, but they don't know mine. Um, so no, I don't. So the, the strictest uh, interpretation of your question, no, I don't share my passwords with the rest of the family. No. What worries me more is if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, they would have no way of logging into any of the systems that I own or any of the online services that we use because they just won't know any of the passwords for any of it. And that, that worries me a little bit. Yeah. Well, same for me, really. That's why, um, you know, I share my life with my wife and she knows all the passwords to everything or, or she's got them saved somewhere or whatever. So she has access to everything, I think. Uh, apart from my work email, which she doesn't need access to, it's basically anything that she might need access to. Like she will often log into my Google account that has my backed up photos so she can check out those. You know, I just say to her, oh, I, I took some cool photos yesterday. And so she just logs into my account with her uh, laptop and checks them out. But she doesn't like have my SSH keys or anything like that, anything that's just boring and she doesn't need but if she wanted them, I wouldn't have any problem giving them to her because I know that she. I've taught her enough about security practices and everything. So, yeah, I don't know. It just seems weird to me that you wouldn't um, do it. It's as if you've got something to hide or whatever. It's not that I've got anything to hide. It's just that I have a lot of accounts and a lot of passwords, and I don't know a really good, efficient way of sharing them with her and making sure they're all kept secure still. Get a bunch of post-it notes, yeah. stick them on her monitor. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I could, I don't know, you can share LastPass accounts and Bitwarden accounts and stuff like that. There's probably two or three master passwords that would get her, you know, the list of things she needs from that point onwards. And those are the ones that I really need to share. But I just haven't found a convenient way other than, like you say, having a post-it note stuck on the wall somewhere with it written down. And what worries me is if it's stored somewhere insecure, like if I gave it to her and she said, well, the easiest way I can put that is in a note on my phone. I'll be like, ah, balls. No, <laughs> don't, right. don't put it there because that's the password that unlocks all of my passwords. You'd get into everything if you had that one. And I, and so I'm really twitchy about that. Um, I'm not a massively security conscious person, but I'm trying and I, I feel like I don't have a good story there. Yeah, I, I think that I can't say good enough things about us having a shared Bitwarden because it's great because we can have our own password to log into Bitwarden. We don't have to share an account there. We each get our own individual accounts. We can individually manage our passwords, choose which ones we share with each other, make sure that they're randomly generated passwords. They're really secure for each account. So we don't have to actually know them. And with all the extensions for every browser and apps and everything, like we don't know any of our passwords but we have all of our passwords and we are able to share all the passwords that we need to share. Yeah, I should look into that. Yeah, I'm thinking I should as well. <laughs> okay, somewhat related. How important is it to have things in common with your life partner? Activities, TV shows, movies, that sort of thing. So before you said activities, TV shows, movies, that sort of thing, I was thinking, well, we live in the same house. <laughs> we have that in common. We both have the same number of children. We have that in common. Uh, but yeah, there's not a tremendous amount that me and my wife have in common. Like we have completely different careers where 
uh, like different musical tastes. Uh, we like different TV programs. There are some that we both commonly like, but there are some where she'll pretty much walk out the room if I start watching and some that I'll probably walk out the room if she starts watching because I just can't be watching like baby births and stuff like that. No. Um, but I think that's fine. I, d- I don't think you need a, h- a huge amount in common because it's that's you each need to have your individuality like i often wonder what it's like for like two doctors who are married or two nurses who are married or you know two librarians who are married or something i don't know i wonder if what they talk about when they get home because like when i'm talking about work it's it's about like technical stuff and yeah okay there's a bit of people management stuff in there as well but when my wife talks about work it's like children and schools and education and you know soft squishy stuff not computers so i think it's actually quite valuable to have not a lot in common i'm actually kind of surprised by your answer because i thought that oh like i'll come with an answer that everybody else is going to be like oh i don't know about that but but I kind of feel the same way where it's, you know, we have enough things in common that we enjoy doing lots of things together, but also enough things that aren't in common that we have our individual TV shows that we like. And, you know, we have certain music that the other person isn't really into or she likes a lot more food than I do. I'm a lot pickier than she is and, and things like that. But I think that we have a nice balance that we have enough things in common and enough things that are different that I don't really think about it. And I don't really think about how many things we have in common. We just spend a healthy amount of time together and spend a healthy amount of time apart. Yeah. When Claire was uh, seven months pregnant with our first child and I dragged her along to a Linux user group meeting, it was at that point I realized she wasn't really interested in Linux user groups. So, you know, I, I go to nerd things and you know she goes out with her friends obviously we socialize together but we often socialize separately just because we like different stuff she likes to go to the ballet i like to go and nerd out um but it's not like we you know have separate bedrooms and live in two halves of the same house it's you know there's there's enough to share for me it's not about having superficial things in common like we've been talking about here i think you've got to have your fundamental characters be quite similar or at least compatible. I think you've got to have a kind of outlook on life that is similar. And whether I love Breaking Bad and she thinks it's overly dramatic and she likes period dramas and I think they're just boring and terrible and love gangster movies or whatever, that, I mean, it does matter because that's the free time that you spend. And so you do have to have some things in common there. But you know, having the same worldview, like if if one of us was really pro-Brexit and one of us was really anti-Brexit, I don't see how those kind of couples could possibly, you know, survive as a couple. Yeah, I think you totally hit the nail on the head there because it definitely feels like the things that are more important for us to have in common are things like we both enjoy living in the city where we get to walk to places. Um, Neither of us is constantly pining for like, oh, I wish we lived in the country and had lots of land. You know, it it would be such an opposite like push and pull if, if we had different expectations of how our lives should be lived. And I, I think that's totally true is, is if you're if you're 
opposite in your like lifestyle and kind of moral ideas, then those are the things that you really need to have in common. I don't know. It's it's funny. There's um, an example I can think of that that is counters what you suggested about uh, Joe about having you know s- similar. Um, I don't know, politics maybe. You look at someone like Sarah Sanders, uh, White House press secretary. As I understand it, she's got very different politics from her husband. So the conversations at home, I don't know. Do they, do they just leave work at work and not talk about those things at home? Or are they, you know, do they take the mask off when they get home and talk about other things? Or are they that kind of couple that they could have a deep, combative conversation at home over dinner with completely opposite politics or completely opposite belief systems where, but it's okay because they love each other very much and they enjoy each other's company. And it doesn't matter that they both believe completely different things. I don't know. I I think for me that that would be too hard. And maybe that's just for me and says what kind of person I am. But uh, I just feel like I, I would be unhappy and unsettled at home if it was like, oh my God, like I know that she has this completely opposite moral belief than, than I do. And I would feel frustrated and like, uh, is this, you know, what are we going to do about kids and and things like that? And, and how are we going to, like raise them up in in a way that we feel is morally just if one person has this completely opposite viewpoint on on what is like the ethical thing to do about this thing i don't know i think i would be frustrated i don't know if i would if i would know what to do in that situation and it would make things tense and i and i wouldn't feel good right i don't think i would be able to marry and live with someone who was like passionately deeply religious in any way i would i would find that difficult like you say, it probably says more about me than it does about, you know, about my ability to, to deal with that. I, but then like they say, love is blind. And if, you know, you fall for someone, um, maybe that stuff doesn't matter and you get past that because it's the person that you're with and it's not whatever their belief system is. Well, I do believe that love is blind and you do end up adapting. Um, because, uh, over the last sort of 10 or 15 years that we've been together, I've actually started to like glam rock. So <laughs> I think that says it all. Yeah.